word? What's the word? I've never done this on air. No. So the word virgin, you would think he'd use the word alma. So look up the Hebrew that he's using. The word betula will appear in the Hebrew of Franz Delic twice. Oh my God. Christian Septuagint that was used to then correct or back up to wipe away the dirty fingerprints of the New Testament and back up all the corruption in the New Testament. Lucifer doesn't appear anywhere in the Christian Bible. It's nowhere in the Greek. It shouldn't be in the Hebrew Bible because it doesn't say that in the Hebrew Bible. If the Jesus of the Talmud is the Jesus of Christianity, then Jesus was conceived through adultery and did not have a human Jewish father. His actual biological father was a Roman soldier. Could it be that the Joseph character, being Joseph, the husband of Mary, was a later invention to cover this? Where do we find Joseph, the husband of Mary? Is he mentioned in the letters of Paul? None of them. singer who I'm a big fan of who I've been watching for some time now who um I don't know if you I didn't tell you this yet but I was a Christian and I was one of the you know evangelical Baptist born again types you know the Trump loving types and uh watching you man really helped me find the truth you know deconvert and and understand the biblical history better it really did like you probably like high on that list of people who I learned a lot from that actually let me look at what I'm doing. Is this true? Am I going the right path or not? And I, I checked into everything. I, I literally checked everything you said to make sure if it was true or not. And I've never, I don't think anything you've ever said was false. Anything. So I'm glad to have you on. Well, thank you for having me on. As it turns out, the, my viewers um, are, People who are audiences are highly variegated, and many of them are Christians and different faiths. So it's really important for me not to appeal to scholars and any of that stuff. Just like go right to the text itself. Yeah. And we're lucky to be able to do this today because 200 years ago, we would have both gotten killed for having this conversation. Yep. So it's good that we're able to do this freely. So I'm yeah. I'm grateful to join you. Thank you. It, it is. Um. I want to talk about the the uh, the Christian Bibles and the original Old Testament for the Christian Bibles being the Septuagint is uh, trans supposedly was translated under Ptolemy. Uh, they were trying to translate the Hebrew text into Greek so that the Gentile world can have can join the Jewish faith, and you know that led to basically the soil for Christianity to grow out of. And I want to get into Basically, how for, for I want to talk about how Christianity is almost diametrically opposed to Judaism, but I also want to first I want to get into where is the Septuagint mistranslating the text, and where is it doing it on purpose, or what is 
Like, let's get into that. All right. So we need just a quick history lesson. You're quite right. Roughly 2,250 years ago, 72 rabbis were commissioned to translate the Torah, that's just the five books of Moses, into the Greek language for a a Greek empire. And Greek was the like English today. And this translation was done for the famed library in Alexandria. Okay? And that was called the Septuagint, meaning 70 or 72. Now, that Septuagint of just the five books of Moses is gone. We don't have it. We only have 14 quotes from it that are recorded in the Talmud in Tractate Megillah 9a and b, if someone wants to look it up. This actually becomes very important for a reason that I'll explain. Now, the, the Jewish Bible is huge. It's much more than the five books of Moses, although the five books of Moses, to give your viewers an understanding, the five books of Moses is still larger than the Christian Bible. In fact, the first four books of the five books of Moses is much larger than the New Testament. So Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, is nearly 24,000 passages. It's enormous. So subsequent to that original translation, let's just say 20, let's just say 270 BCE, subsequently there was a need in Jewish communities in throughout the empire and in Africa to produce a translation of the entire Tanakh. And everybody, this became a cottage industry to translate it. And everyone was attempting it. But here is the point that the viewer must understand. So when after the King James Bible was completed in 1611, there were many other attempts to translate the Bible into the English language, right? And you're familiar with them. And there are many that are recent in the 20th century. But they didn't call themselves the King James Version. They called themselves the New International Version, the NIV, the New American Standard. They gave them different names. Or they even would say the New King James, so you knew it was something, it was the King James, but it was newer somehow. So there's all these other translations in English, and but they gave them different names, so you knew it wasn't the KJV. Well, this didn't happen back then. When anyone subsequently translated the Hebrew Bible, Tanakh, into the Greek language, they just kept calling it the Septuagint or the LXX, meaning 70. This creates, this is where all the confusion comes in. And in fact, to the credit of the King James translators, 47 men of the Church of England, in their preface, to the King James Version. You can go online, it's, it's, it's copyright free. They write about this problem, that there were so many different iterations of a Greek translation, all calling themselves the Septuagint. They were committed, committed to translating from the Hebrew and not translating from the Septuagint. They're not the first people to discover the Septuagint was a nightmare, completely corrupted because the church got their hands on it. That means it wasn't just Jews who were doing this. Now you had famed Christians. The most famous of all was probably the most brilliant Christian apologist in history, 
Origen, the third century church father. He's very important for many reasons, but one reason is enormous, and that is he was one of only two church fathers, that's it, who is completely conversant, completely literate in both Greek and Hebrew. Only he and Jerome uh, were completely fluent in Hebrew. And therefore, what Origen did was he created the final version of the Septuagint in what's called the hexaplo. We lost it, but it was a a multi-panel, multi-column Bible, and ultimately that was used, a Christian Septuagint that was used to then correct or back up, provide a to wipe away the dirty fingerprints of the New Testament and back up all the corruption of the New Testament. So here is the the good news. As that those words good news was coming out of my mouth, I realized there was a pun. Here is here is the good news. The good news is that the writers of the New Testament did not use the Septuagint in order to create their translation. You're going to get that from your professors, either because they're evangelical fundamentalist Christians or because this is just standard, this is standard fare in the, in, this is what their professors are taught. This is how professors, they're all according to the Septuagint. There is not a single place in the Christian Bible where we are told that the Septuagint is being quoted. The Septuagint is not even mentioned. Moreover, in Luke 4.18 as an example, when Jesus, we are told, is reading from the prophets in a synagogue on Sabbath in Nazareth, he's reading from a Hebrew scroll. He's reading from a Hebrew scroll. And here's the crazy spin, crazy, crazy. So he's reading Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, that I come to bring you the good news for the Spirit has been put upon me and to free the captives. And there's an insert in there because Luke needs Jesus to say to heal the blind, to provide sight to the blind. Because Jesus is doing many miracles in the Gospels, but the big one, there are a lot of them, but the big one we should find all over the place is Jesus is healing blind people. So he actually inserts in healing the blind. This is really big because throughout Tanakh, there is not one mention of the Messiah performing any miracles. And the Septuagint, therefore, in Isaiah chapter 61, on the Septuagint, you'll find healing the blind, giving sight to the blind, to, in order to comport with the scam in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, but it's not in the Hebrew, it doesn't exist. So that's just, this is, a, I'm giving you, the, view, the viewer, a shocking example. So when people say that the New Testament authors were quoting the Septuagint, ask, show me the evidence for it. What's then going to happen is they're going to say, Well, open up the Septuagint. The Septuagint agrees with the New Testament. But the Septuagint was written later, our version of Septuagint that you can buy on Amazon, on Kindle or in hardcover. That Septuagint is a product of the church. And so it's the other way around. You you could not possibly have, um, Mark Twain could not have copied Barbara Tuckman. It's the other way around. Origen was adjusting his Greek translation to comport, to back up, to bolster the filthy corruptions found in the Christian Bible. <laughs> that, was, that must have sounded really offensive to a Christian. I, but I, I say it because you've got to know. What am I going to tell you? I can't, I can't make up stuff.
the reason why I wanted to interject though, I want to ask you this because you, what you're saying makes perfect sense. Like if you're, if you're a crime investigator and you're looking at this, everything that's quoted in the new Testament seems to match the current Septuagint. I, mean, I use air quotes. Um, so, but the question is, if you, if what you're saying is true and they, they actually retranslated the Septuagint later times to, to fit the new Testament, where, what is Luke quoting from? Luke isn't quoting someone. You see, we're, we're, we want to believe that people are honest to some degree as we are. And because you and I, what we're doing is we're projecting, because you and I would not run a scam. Presumably, you and I would not, you know, would never write a lie and as though it was true. We then impose it onto others. And then we wind up encountering people who actually are not honest. Now, one caveat, of course, you know, we don't know who wrote the book of Luke. But it is unlikely that Luke and Matthew were these two scheming geniuses who just came up with this stuff. Because, in fact, Luke 4 is an L source. It's not to be found in the other Gospels. And there are many M sources. These were oral traditions that were developing in the Greco-Roman world, not only in the land of Israel, but in the surrounding areas in Rome. And they developed over time. Remember, from the time of the crucifixion, let's just say that occurred in 30, the time the book of Luke is written, that's 40 years, 45 years. That's an enormous amount of time in the ancient world. So Luke is then gathering oral traditions, as is Matthew. They're both using Mark. They have Mark in front of them. Both of them will almost copy Mark, all 600, not all, but almost all 679 passages of Mark. And then they'll make adjustments because Mark is awkward. They'll, they have another source which did not survive, and that's called the source. It's a Q source. It's a Q source. We don't have the Q source. It only survives through Matthew and Luke, and those are less than 300 passages that are common to Matthew and Luke but don't appear in Mark. So they had that. But then they had other traditions. So this, these stories were oral traditions running around, and they then, whoever wrote it in the sense that we have, we have it today, now we don't by the way, don't have a copy of the book of Luke for 200 years after it was written. It's not like we have a first century copy. Our earliest complete manuscript of the book of Luke is fourth century. Is, excuse me, is, right, is more than 200, is Codex Sinaiticus. I mean, that's the oldest. I mean, we're talking hundreds of years after the book of Luke was written. How we date Luke and Acts is a different matter, but this is end of first century, but we have no manuscripts in the first century. I believe we have 12 fragments from the second century. Fragments. Very, very little. I mean, until we start to see any the third and then the fourth century, of course, we have more because we have the, the major codices. But um, so what, what's happened here is these authors, these are editors who are collecting, accumulating information, then sewing it together in their versions of the Gospels. That's why we find common material and material that's completely different, LM and so on. So that's actually a good point. Do you, do you think, like, let's say the rubber rope marker Q, the earliest versions, do you think that they're, because I was, and it's funny, because you ever seen a movie where, Someone's at a job interview. It's like a comedy and they're being asked questions. That they don't know the answers. They're looking around the room and they just, whatever they see, they'll be like, oh, and they see a picture of a car. They'll be like, oh, I worked on cars or something like that. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Like, 
They have no idea, but they're looking around for answers. That seems like what the New Testament is. It seems like every passage is being taken from the Old Testament from somewhere. For example, um, Jesus being sold for 30 shekels. Well, you see that in Joseph being sold. He's sold by Judah. Jesus is sold by Judas. The entire New Testament is sort of these little mini allegories of the Old Testament. And that, the, the reason, and I think what I'm getting at, the question I'm getting towards is, it, do, do, do the original writers of Q or Mark, do they have fragmentary scrolls? Do they have a Bible? Do, what, do they have an Old Testament? What, what was their source, basically, is what I'm trying to get at. So, so Q is a very different type of book than the book of Mark, because Q is sayings of Jesus. Um, Mark is a lot more than sayings of Jesus. In fact, Mark in contrast, is so different because Mark is only 16 chapters. The first eight chapters, and see, almost no one on the planet ever read the book of Mark but has not yet read the book of Matthew. That's why this is so difficult for people. So every when everyone gets to Mark, they've read Matthew, and they just seem to see Matthew in Mark, and they just fill it in because they are similar but what's unique to the book of Mark is that who Jesus is is a huge secret in the book of Mark. Eight chapters, it's the biggest secret in the world. Don't tell anyone who I am. It's the big secret, right? So, you know, so that's very, very strange stuff. Mark, of course, has the vicarious atonement of human sacrifice and and spirit and and cannibalism, the ritual cannibalism of the Eucharist is in the book of Mark. The vicarious atonement, which was manufactured by Paul years earlier in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, you have that same kind of vicarious atonement where Jesus dies as a, as a covering, as a ransom, the same text in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Notice, by the way, it's not Luke. We have no uh, no equivalent in the book of Luke because Luke doesn't believe in vicarious atonement, that Jesus died vicariously for your sins. So it's noticeably, ab- that text is noticeably absent in the book of Luke. So, so Q and Mark are really different kind of book, very, very different. Why is it? Some, okay, let's say, let's, we go back in time to first century Jerusalem. And we go to some Sadducees there, and they have their Torah and their Tanakh, and they and we walk up to them and we're like, "Hey, we, the Messiah is here, is Jesus, and he's going to die for you, or he died for your sins on the cross." What are they going to say to that? Is this going to be what are they going to say? They, they would say exactly what an American would say if you claim that David Koresh, who died in Waco in a confrontation with federal agents was the Messiah. And there are branch Davidians in the United States who still believe that. And his name was David. Do you think that's just an accident? And he visited Jerusalem. David Koresh spent plenty of time here in Israel studying in yeshiva among Jews. Don't you get it that David Koresh is really the Messiah? But he had to die. He had to die with so many because he gave his life for you. And in, how would an American respond? They go, you have lost your mind. There is nothing about David Koresh's death, violent death, along with so many other souls in in right outside of Waco, Texas, that bears no resemblance to anything in the book of Isaiah. I encourage you, the viewer, 
to consider just looking at the claims of Christianity of the New Testament and then looking at the Hebrew Bible. Does it match or not? See, Christianity can be falsified easily because it's making claims that it's the fulfillment of the Hebrew Bible. So when we open up Isaiah chapter 2, let's say you're, you're in New York City for a moment. You're driving on the FDR Drive. You might have done this. You, you see the United Nations on First Avenue. And you see at 42nd Street on the northeast corner, the quote from Isaiah chapter 2. It's engraved. It's called the Isaiah Wall. Okay, People, millions of people come there to visit just to see that. And it says there that the nations, it's a messianic passage, it'll be at the end of days, that the Messiah will rebuke nations. They will take their swords and beat them into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither will they learn of war anymore. Okay? Pow! That's a you. So, see, the Jewish Bible is very comfortable about making highly falsifiable claims. Uh, it'll just stop raining if you don't listen to me. Not you'll go to hell because you can't check that out. There's no verification. If you are not loyal to the God of Israel, I'm going to send you into exile 70 years. That's highly falsifiable. And then they're going to be exiled again. It's going to be a long exile, but you are going to return to Jerusalem. Those are the kinds of claims that whoever wrote the Jewish Bible is making. The Christian Bible is saying that we are the true version fulfillment of the Jewish Bible. Luke 24, 2 Timothy 3, 16. This is all over the place. I mean, John, you know, if you would have believed in Moses, you would have believed in me because he spoke about, he wrote about me. Really? There is nothing weird. Not only that, here the epic, the epic messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 2. I mean, Isaiah chapter 2, these are the, so famous that even the United Nations, I'm not a fan, okay? But even the United Nations has it on a wall, okay? Do you know that Isaiah chapter 2 is never quoted in the New Testament? It's not even quoted. It's never mentioned. The, it's a scam. The whole thing is a scam. So what they do is they put in healing the blind, which is nowhere in the Hebrew Bible, and they don't quote the stuff that would be... If Jesus brought about a world peace when nations would stop fighting and there'll be a worldwide knowledge of God, we'd know about that today. Moreover, has there been another religion that's been more bloody than the church? The bloodiest religious war in human history was fought between Christians. It was an intra-Christian war. The 30 war that lasted from 1618 to 1648, Protestant, Christian, Protestant Catholics slaughtered each other other Christians for not being Catholic. You got you got inquisitions on the Jews. You got crusades on the Muslim. You got witch trials on pagans. They're killing everybody. And they're going to war against anybody who opposes them. So it's not an era of peace. In fact, it's an era, in my opinion, in my, in my own history digging, the thousand years from 400, I'd say, or around the time of Jerome and to like 1500 is a backslidden time for the West, I think. Even in the Christian Bible, they're fighting like crazy. I mean, in truth, you know, that we can doubt many things about the New Testament, but one thing that definitely passes that high bar of the, of the criteria of embarrassment is that the earliest Christians were fighting each other. You know, in the letters of Paul, Paul is generally not fighting with Jewish people who are not Christians, people like me. 
Paul's um, battles that he had is with, with fellow Christians. I mean, almost all of his writings are about fellow Christians. He couldn't get along. He couldn't get along with Barnabas. I mean, he's the guy who introduced him to the apostles. He wouldn't travel with John Mark. He embarrassed Peter to his face in Antioch, Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. It is inconceivable that this would have been invented. This is so embarrassing. He mocked the so-called pillars of the church in Galatians 1 and 2, and in Philippians, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He questioned, not only mocked them, but questioned if they're saved. There's no way in the world that someone would have invented that. So in reality, Paul was this guy. You must have met people like this who just can't get along with anyone. I mean, just people who just, that was Paul. Paul was a guy who was not fighting with Jews like religious Jews. There's very little of that. It is, but very little. Almost all of his his the, the nasty things that he had to say were, were fellow Christians, fellow believers in Jesus who did not hold to Paul's Christology. So let's get into the text now. Let's get into, for example, it says that the, the, most Christians will point to, but what about Psalm 20? Or what about Isaiah 14, where it talks about, uh, I think it's Isaiah 14, whatever it says that the, a virgin shall be born. Let's start with that one. Let's start, let's start with that. What is it? Let's get into this. What does it really yeah. say in the Hebrew? And what? how did it go from what it says in Hebrew to what it says in Greek? Yeah, so how do you, like, you know, like people fake their driver's license. The kids do that to get into an R-rated movie. I mean, how do you do it? You just change it. I mean, how do kids, how do 15-year-olds who want to see an R-rated movie? I don't know exactly how the movies work. I think you have to be 17. Like, so what did kids do? You made up a fake ID. Like, how do people cash checks that were never written to them? They forge, they change text, they print it out. They have 3D printers that can do it. I mean, how, what? All right. So the text in Isaiah 714 says, mm-hmm. Behold, the Lord of his own will give you a sign. Behold, the young woman, and in this case, Isaiah is pointing to to his own wife. Hineho al-Mahora, behold, the young woman is pregnant, Violedas Bane, and she's going to give birth to his son, the Karas Shimo Emmanuel. And she will call his name Emmanuel. That's the text. Let me just jump in. Let's say I'm a Christian on the street and you just right. you just told me that. And I'll say, right. well why can't it say why can't the word Alma be mean virgin? What do you say to that? Uh so what we would do is we would Fine. Where is? Let's say you don't know any Hebrew at all. Like, how do you know the Jews aren't making this up? Okay, this is good. This is real. So let's think. I want to think this through with you. So, you don't presumably you don't speak Hebrew. So, like, how do you know? Now you can go to any Israeli in the world. Say, how do you say virgin Hebrew? Virginity is really important in faith in the Bible. It's a word that appears nearly a hundred and fifty times. Isaiah uses it numerous times. So. Being a virgin is a real big deal, and it's the same word in both biblical and modern Hebrew. But how do you know? I mean, there's a lot at stake, because if Matthew in chapter 1, verse 23 lied about this, then the whole New Testament loses its credibility, and Christianity is, a, is the biggest fraud that was perpetrated on mankind. So how do you know I'm telling you the truth? There's a lot at stake. I'll tell you a lot, a lot of stuff. 
first of all, so what we would like to do, even though it's a very well-known, what we'd like to do is we'd like to use take the word Alma, which appears many times in the Hebrew Bible, and see how it is used in other places. That means, for example, in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 19, okay, we're told about derech gever bialma, the way of a man is with a young, with a young woman. And then it continues discussing that she is actually a an adulterous woman. And after they commit an act of fornication, all she has to do is wash herself up and say, I have done nothing wrong. That's some virgin for you. That's, so that uses the word Alma there, right? Yes, of course. Derek Gebra wow. Alma. Sweethearts. That is a up. good example right there. Wow. Bing, bing bongo. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 56, King David is called an Elam, that's the masculine version of this. So what was King David, then a virgin too? I mean, this is this is outrageous. And it, it is women, look, it is, it is young women that get pregnant and have babies as opposed to old women. This is really simple. I'll tell you something I never told anyone publicly. I mean, I just never came up. I'll tell you something really interesting. The the Christian Bible was translated into the Hebrew language in the in the 19th century. It's a very, very famous translation. And it was done by a guy named Franz Delich. Franz Delich was a, was a, a genius of a Hebraist. He was a Christian, a devout Christian. And he translated, he was one of the, in the Christian world, he was one of the greatest, if not the greatest Hebraist of the 19th century. He his commentary he's his commentary on what he called the Old Testament is necessary for all scholars to understand every Christian view of all the stuff. Okay, he's just right now he's just huge. Okay, he embarks on translating the Christian Bible into the Hebrew language. Why he does it? Well, he would like he would like people to you know to believe in. in Jews to believe in Jesus. So he translates the New Testament in Hebrew. Now, here's what's so interesting. I I don't know if this is the same version, but this is, I was going to show you this at the end, but I used to get, I, these, they used to pass these out of my church. They're Hope for Israel Bibles. They're New Testament. Okay. This is, this is going to blow your crazy mind away. The, what I'm about to say, I, I've taught, but I've never said on air before. Okay. So you're going to get this and this is going to pow. Okay. So, Right now, just take my word for it until you Google it. Franz Delich is a, a giant. He was the, and his translation really is so well done, and it is. It's like just, just so well done that it is still the Hebrew translation of the New Testament to this day. I mean, every year. And you, we didn't arrange this. You happen to have one in front of you. Okay, this is beautiful. So here's a very interesting thing we can do. See, what Christians are arguing is that's the word Alma that means a virgin, but like a married virgin. This is such a scam, you have no idea. So if you go to the book of Luke, now I don't know, because I can't see you. For the viewers, know that I can't see you, so I just hear. So, so if you go to Luke chapter 1, verse 27, in that Bible done by Franz Delish, was given up by whatever, New Hope. There are a lot of places that give this out, okay? 
That is the text where it says where Mary is called a virgin to a, a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Okay, that's Luke chapter one verse twenty-seven. I plead with you to look this up. I got it right here. Uh, Luke Bingo. chapter one, Lucas verse twenty-seven. I actually know how to read a little bit, a little bit of here. I can't like say it. Talk. I can read the words though. I know you can't see, but just so people people can see. See, it says on the top. It says L Lamech. Vav, Kof, Samek. That's Lucas. All right, so Lucas chapter 1, what is it? Verse 27. Verse 27. So, you, so okay, so he's, you're saying that he translated it back to Hebrew? Yeah, so he took the Greek and he translated it into Hebrew, okay? Got it? That's what Franz Dulwich does at the end of the 19th century. This is a very famous thing, okay? Okay. I'm looking right, at the he, verse, but let me see if I can find the word. What's the word? I've about? never done this on air. No. So the word virgin, you would think he'd use the word Alma, because after all, it's the word Alma that means a virgin. Yeah, I don't but see the word was, Alma here. But what you do see is Betula. So look up the Hebrew that he's using. The word Betula will appear in the Hebrew of Franz Delich twice. It says in in Delich's translation, it says El Betula Maorashal Ish Ashashmo Yosef Mi Base David Vishem Habasula Miriam. I'm going to show it right now. Hold on, I just found it. You found it, right? So am I making this up? Look at am I whoever's watching this right now? Verse 27. It says Gazarat El Betula. Betula, bingo, bingo. This is mind blowing. You know, I was always a little nervous. I'm I'm not, this is not like we didn't arrange this. You had no idea I was going to discuss this. I've never discussed this with anyone on air. It just sort of never came up. But here, that's crazy. Do you see what I'm saying? This is, look, there's a lot at stake here. I mean, if Christianity is a true religion, everyone should be in church. And if it isn't, it is the worst human iteration in history. It's the worst thing in the world. And here's the scam. I'm showing it to you quite literally Dude, in my black mind is and white. Right now. Isn't so, it blown I away? I mean, one second. This I is... explain this to people who might not Please understand do. what I'm talking about. Take your time. Go the word it. Betula is not in Isaiah. In this, in this particular Hebrew New Testament, he's quoting Isaiah, but he's changing the word from Alma, which means young woman. He's changing it to the word Betula, which means virgin showing you that the verse is wrong and he had to fix it. It, it gets even naughtier, a little naughtier. I'm going to edge of you. How can it get naughtier than this? So as it turns out, Luke is, doesn't quote the verse. He just says it. And that's the way Luke does. He just says it. Matthew actually says, like it says in the prophet in Matthew one twenty three. So you'll notice in Delich's translation, which you have in front of you, in Matthew's one twenty three. so he's forced. If you go there, he used the word Alma because he's stuck because he's saying he's quoting Isaiah in Matthew one twenty three. You have to keep a finger in Luke one twenty seven. You see what I mean? This is more scammy. Than, this is... This is so over the top that if you're pregnant, if your mother was ever pregnant, if you could spell the word pregnant, this show is not for you. This is could just flip you out when I'm showing you. This is like the scam of not of the century of the last thousand years, two thousand years. And here again, I am using a hostile witness. That means Franz Delich was a devout Christian. 
He translated the Christian Bible to Hebrew to convert Jews to Christianity because it was in Hebrew. And it is a it is just the most, by far the most famous translation of the other people have tried it after him. No one got close, and it actually reads very well. He did a he did a terrific job on the translation. But he knew himself when Luke is going to use the term virgin about Mary, he knew that the word to use is Betula, not the word Alma, thus uncovering the scam of Matthew. That's how mind blowing this is. Oh my God. So so I, I so this is actually happening still today with Christians, and I'm not gonna. I don't want to. Okay, so I want to talk about the young, the the, the uh, they pierced my hands and feet. Let's get into this one. But before you say anything about that, I want to mention something that I've I've uh, I've done Go some ahead. work with with uh, Dr. Kip Davis, Dead Sea Scrolls scholar, and he is pointing out to me that the 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 score when the scrolls were found, they were given over to a bunch of Christian scholars, and these That's Christian true. scholars just said we're just going to be completely honest and unbiased. Well. Well, this is what happened. This is this is a big deal. And I think this needs to be talked about. And I was actually going to ask you, I think you should go and look into this because you're over in Israel and the scrolls are over there. I think you you and your people should go and look this up. But anyways, there's a scroll fragment that literally because all of the Hebrew, um, all of the Hebrew says that like a lion it doesn't say they pierced my hands. It just says like a lion. And I'm going to let you get into that in a second. But the reason why I'm bringing this up is because uh, Peter. I think his name is Peter. Uh, I can't remember his name. Dead Sea Scroll scholar, Christian. Um, you know the guy from Canada you're talking about? Yes, yes. He took I know the, scrolls, the professor, right? He found a scroll fragment that was almost ineligible and then said that he did his work unbiasedly and said, it turns out that it matches with the Septuagint version, which is the like a virgin. Which, now, is, the, which is the creepy Davis, translation, right? Chip Davis did an amazing job. He took the scroll and he showed it and said, look, it doesn't say that. Not only is it ineligible, it probably is like a lion. It doesn't say, uh, it doesn't say, you can't even see it, first of all. Right. Even a little right. bit that you can see, so, it looks like lion. Yeah. So let me, let me help you. I have an entire chapter. I'm not trying to sell books, but volume two of Let's Get Biblical, I have a whole chapter devoted to this, and I name all the names, and I have the manuscript there for you to see. Okay. So, this whole thing is a complete fake. So let's sort this all out. The, the Psalm 22 was very important to Christians because in the Christian Bible, there are passages that are quoted from Psalm 22. And let's get a look, what's Psalm 22? So you need to know this. King David is speaking. He's crying. He's got a lot of problems. King David had huge problems. He had a son who wanted to kill him. He had friends who betrayed him. He had a wife that didn't respect him. He had problems. His father-in-law wanted to kill him. And basically, in these chapters, dialing much, much earlier, he's saying that basically all my enemies are around me. And he compares them to lions, to dogs, to bulls. And that's what you're using. He is employing a metaphor of wild animals that are all around me. And this all brings us to the famous Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Why is this the most striking chapter in the Bible? Because King David says, ultimately, the Lord is my shepherd, and therefore I have nothing to fear. You comfort me. And the key is that we're supposed to learn from King David that even though lines are surrounding me, my enemies, dogs, okay. So it's somebody speaking in the first person about his own suffering. It's not a future prophecy. 
So when King David says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me in the beginning of chapter 22? So of course, the Christian Bible is going to take that text, misappropriate, and put it in the mouth of Jesus when he's on the cross about to die. Very famously, the cry of dereliction in the book of Mark. And when they cut off his clothes and they parted it, so they use that because that appears in Psalm 22. But the idea that it says in Psalm 22, they pierced my hands and meat, feet, for dogs have encompassed me, a, a company of evildoers have surrounded me. And then if you have a Christian Bible, it'll say, they pierced my hands and my feet. That sounds like crucifixion. But in Hebrew, it says, Ko'ari and Ari is a lion. So this is the Nachal Chever, right? This is the Nachal Chever scroll. Nachal Chever, people just see, you know, just a little history. So the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was found in the 1940s. So that's in Qumran. In Qumran, we do not have Psalm 22, verse 16 in the Jewish Bible, 17 in the Christian Bible. Uh, um, right. Excuse me, 17 in the Jewish Bible, 16 in a Christian Bible. I just need to make that point. In a Hebrew Bible, the verse counting is one later. So Psalm 22, 17 in a Hebrew Bible is Psalm 22, 16 in a Christian Bible. You just got to know that, okay? That text does not, did not, was not found in Qumran. There is a later text in the Dead Sea area, probably 30 kilometers from Qumran, so it's still in that region of the world, where another, where a younger text was found called the Nachal Chever, which, uh, which is younger. It was written between the wars. So there you have this very, it's not like Qumran texts that are relatively, not all of them, but the great Isaiah scroll, relatively easy to read. It's relatively uniform words. It's, it's not that. It's just almost impossible to read what it says. Very, very difficult. So by, so some characters went, and so you had the word ko'ari, which means like a line. If you remember, George W. Bush had a press secretary. He's a famous, famous guy in America. His name was Ari Fleischer. You may know him, okay? Ari Fleischer was the, he's, he's a Jew, and he was George W. Bush's press secretary. Ari is, an, is a Jewish man's name. Ari means lion. Ko'ari, that preface, means like a lion. I mean, this is like really rudimentary words. So what they went and said is that the, the last letter is not really a yud, which is a very tiny letter, but it's rather a vav, which is more elongated. This is all fake, because you would have to remove the alf at the beginning, and the next word is misspelled in Nachachever cave. I illustrate this in Vinder. I'm not trying to sell books. I have a whole chapter where I go through all the manuscripts. It's all a fake. It's all a fraud. Here's the wacko one. Are you ready for this? Deep breath. If you're of a vegan, this is not for you. If you've had anything today that has molecules in it for dinner, this is not for you. <laughs> Do you know that this scam wasn't even thought up by the writers of the New Testament? It's never quoted in the Christian Bible. Do you know that if you can go through the entire Christian Bible and you'll never find this verse quoted? 
This is a later scam. This is a second century scam. That means the writers of the New Testament, whoever wrote it, never thought, it never dawned on them to, to misquote this text and mistranslate it. This is a later machination. This is a later dirty deal. This is a later false shuffle. This is a later shuffle from the bottom of the deck. Now, I, I need you, the viewer, to understand the ramification of this. In order to believe that it says they, that means really it said they pierced my hands and my feet. And the Jews are just so blind and we just don't, that we change it to like a lion. You have to believe the following scam. You have to believe that the writers of the New Testament knew it said in Psalm 22, verse 16, that they pierced my hands and my feet, yet none of them, not Paul, not the writer of Hebrews, not the writer of the Gospels, not whoever wrote the letters of, of, of John, no one thought that those that verse would have been important enough to quote in the Christian Bible. The most nonsensical verses are quoted in the Christian Bible. They have nothing to do with what the original, but it really said pierced and the New Testament authors never thought of it. Now, what I'm saying now, if you're a Christian and you're watching me, this will blow you away because you're going to look this up because you won't believe me. You've been taught in church ad nauseum that this is a quote about Jesus. Well, then why didn't Matthew, Mark, and Luke quote it? And they're quoting Psalm 22. It's like it's not like a chapter that no one knew about. They liked this chapter. That's how scammy this is. That means this isn't in this didn't even make it a New Testament because it wasn't thought of. No one thought of this in the first century. That's how insane this is. Wow. So this is what happened then. So you get the, the New Testament gets written, Jesus is crucified. Now the church comes along and they're they're revising whatever Septuagint version they have at that time. And they're adding things that sound, they're, they're going backwards and they're retranslating the Old Testament to fit exactly. the New Testament. So therefore, they see, they see a perfect opportunity. They can change the word Koresh to, or Koresh. Kari. They could just translate Kari as peers. And then they have to do one other thing, make sure that no Christian school teaches Hebrew to kids. Make sure you talk Latin, a ridiculous language. Like, who do you need to speak Latin to, an Eskimo? Like, why are they teaching Latin? Look, Christians, this doesn't make sense. You look at the church uh, banning Talmuds, banning Hebrew, yeah. banning Hebrew Bibles. Right. There's a, there's a, you, you can see everything starts to right. add up after a while. We start looking at the stuff. This is why I care about Christians. This is why, if you're a Christian, I care about you. And I'm not angry at you. And I understand why you might not like me. I don't care. I understand what's been done to you. You see, every Jewish kid, you go to Hebrew school, they want to teach you Hebrew. Now, maybe you learned Hebrew, maybe you didn't pay attention. If you went to a yeshiva, a real day school, Hebrew is a mother language, okay? The reason why they're cramming, they want you to learn Hebrew is because they don't want you to trust anybody. Here's the original language. They want to empower you. So you couldn't get away with this scam among Jews because even though we would produce translations because there are people who convert to Judaism, just can't read Hebrew, we need to have them, but every religious Jew could read Hebrew. I mean, not like can read it, like you have a guy who took two courses of it. No, 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 like bang, that's how we pray. I mean, we just can read it. So you can't get away with this kind of false shuffle with the Jewish people. And the church got away with it completely because 
its parishioners, they weren't going to, they didn't have access to a Bible. Moreover, in the ancient church, as in the Orthodox churches today and the Catholic church, these services are highly liturgical, which means that they're highly structured services, and the parts of the Bible you hear about are only what the priests read from the pulpit. That's from the lectern. That's it. You're, there's no encouragement in the Greek Orthodox Church to go home and read the Bible. And if you do, you're just going to be getting, if you're, if you're a Protestant, you're just reading a King James or NIV, and you don't even know that you've been scammed, and you think the Catholics have been scammed because they don't read the Bible at all. The Protestants are the ones who have been scammed the most because they think they're reading it, and they're reading a scam translation. Point. So that that is awesome. We just did, we just demonstrated two huge examples of parts of the New Testament that were, or part, I'm sorry, parts of the Old Testament that were changed by the church. For example, Alma, meaning young woman, could change the virgin. And then you got, uh, they pierced my hands and feet, which really was really said like a lion. So, I mean, you could talk to any, go to any um, pastor in an evangelical church, King James only church, and you'll say, what's the, what's the pure Old Testament in Hebrew? They'll say the Masoretic text. They'll all say that. It's like, okay, now if that's the case, then why does it say like a lion and Alma? How do you answer that? And they'll say, oh, you're just looking at it too much. Stop doing that. Stop. I'm not, I'm not kidding. This has been my experience. This is how I left my church. Another example of this, and I want to get your opinion on this. Who is Lucifer? And is he, does he, did Isaiah write about Lucifer? How did Lucifer end up in the Bible? No, it's in a King James Bible, but it doesn't actually exist. It's an invention. So Lucifer is really the name for the, uh, for the planet Venus. And in Isaiah chapter 12, um, Isaiah refers to the kings of Babylon that they hold themselves high. The planet Venus, for those who don't know, is the brightest celestial body that, from our vantage point in the sky. Okay? It's, it's called the morning star. Why? Because let's say it's day. Like I'm in Jerusalem right now, so it's night. Where you are, it's in the United States, so it's day. Right, so during the day you can't see the stars. Not that because you, they're not there. They're there, but it's too bright. The sun is too bright, so the stars are no are not visible during the day. Even at night, there's too much light pollution. Here's the key. So at night you see the stars, and you, that planet Venus is the brightest thing in the sky. What happens is as the sun starts coming, it's a, it's a magnificent. Just a gorgeous metaphor that Isaiah employs. All the stars begin to disappear. We can't see them any longer because the sun is getting bright as sunlight starts coming in. Okay, the last celestial body to hang in there that's still visible is the planet Venus. Okay, Halel Shachar, the morning star. Okay, so Isaiah is really beautiful. Isaiah is referring to the king of Babylon who is so arrogant, who thinks that you're just going to hang out there and you'll be seen and you'll be worshipped and I, you're like the planet Venus. You're like the morning star, which will disappear. The planet Venus, of course, disappears as the sun comes up and you're going to be gone. What does the King James Version? Now, the King James copied earlier versions that did this in other languages in Latin. Don't ask. All over the place. Is to put in the name Lucifer, the la lucent, like the word light. So that's the name for the planet Venus. Lucifer doesn't appear anywhere in the Christian Bible. It's nowhere in the Greek. 
It shouldn't be in the Hebrew Bible because it doesn't say that in the Hebrew Bible. We live in a time where we can look at our watch, we can look at our cell phone, know what time it is, know what direction we have GPS. In the ancient world, people were much more aware of the stars than we are today because they really depended on it. They didn't have accurate clocks. I mean, this was a very big deal. Like, what direction am I going in? You know, and Israeli soldiers are trained in navigation. They've got to be able to read the stars to know which way to go because they can't have anything light up. In the ancient world, these were very powerful metaphors. So Isaiah is employing a powerful metaphor. There's no Lucifer. This whole word, then that word became, the morning star became to be for Lucifer was added in. And strangely, in Revelation, Jesus is called the morning star, which is really Satan, which is really it gets really crazy because you actually right? putting it all together. You find right. out this Lucifer, he's like synonymous with Satan, but Satan didn't really Satan's not a fallen angel. It's not there's nothing that's not in the old testament. No. It has no. nothing, it's completely Christian. It's, it's a dualistic. We talk about Gnostic. That's so Gnosticism really at its core is a dualistic, highly dualistic idea that is much older than scholars typically attributed to. That means the idea of dualism is very old, very Persian, and it was at the heart of idolatry, of paganism, that there were opposing forces in the world that really were equals. In Judaism, that was impossible. In Judaism, there's one God, there's nothing else, and Satan, who is not mentioned frequently in the Jewish Bible, very rare, and that's good because we have so few instances of him appearing is a servant of God. All he's there to do is to seduce man away from God. Man therefore has free will and he can choose to ignore Satan's blandishments. Satan is really happy because that was his job is to to seduce man and therefore virtue is simply possible. The idea that Satan is a fallen angel is completely pagan. And exactly. And this is why and this the reason why I'm bringing this up is because this this is a huge example of how you can see a Gentile Roman world taking an idea of Satan, making him synonymous with Lucifer, Hades. Now, all of a sudden, you got Hades and you got Pluto. These are the underworld gods who control the underworld. They can have your soul, basically. So now you have this Satan figure becoming the new Hades, but they're taking a character from the Old Testament who's not supposed to have that role. He's not supposed to be the king of the underworld. That doesn't happen in the Old Testament. doesn't exist. The and, and what they do, because so, I want your, your viewers to be educated on this. So what they do is there are wars, battles over Jerusalem at the end of days. The Jewish Bible is very clear that the Jews will return back to the land of Israel at the end of days. Jerusalem will be the center point, will be the core point, and nations will come and attack the Jewish people over Jerusalem, okay? That's just all over. It's in Ezekiel and Zechariah and Isaiah. It's really very famous. So the Jews go into exile for a huge amount of time. They physically return, and then nations come to attack the state of Israel over Jerusalem, and the nations are all destroyed. Okay, you got that? That confederacy of nations that are enemies of the state of Israel right before the Messiah comes, so that confederacy is led by it's called gog in ezekiel chapter 38 so these are enemy nations that are going to war against the jews in israel and now that we happen to be around today we're going well that, that, that's pretty interesting because every time i watch the nightly news israel somehow creeps its way in there a really tiny country and we're on we're on the front page of the new york times indonesia a country where i once served as rabbi 
the fourth largest country in the world, in order for it to make it into the front page of the New York Times, it has to have a tsunami. I mean, Israel's a really, really tiny place. The key point is, so we have countries that are led by wicked leaders who go to war against Jerusalem. But that's, they're not Satan. They're not the devil. You just have leaders, just anti-Jewish people who go to war and they lose. They do very poorly in those wars. Okay, Zechariah 12, Zechariah 8, Ezekiel 38, 39, Zechariah 14. I mean, I want to empower you, the view to understand. So then they go, go, oh, those enemies, that's Satan. No, it's not Satan. Those are enemy nations. We actually are told not kidding, please look it up for yourself. Read Ezekiel 38, that Persia, modern-day Iran, will lead that confederacy. That is, wow is right. Ezekiel was written 2,500 years ago. Incidentally, you, the viewers, just take this to heart, that at the time, the Persian Empire was benign to the Jews. That means, in fact, it was the Persian Empire that allowed the Jews to return back to build a second commonwealth. Right. So therefore, it was counterintuitive for someone to make this up. That means Persia, Iran, in Tanakh, is considered the arch enemy of the Jewish people at the end of days. And when those books were written, that was the furthest thing in the world, you would think. And find Persia, do a word search of Persia. You'll see it right there in Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel 38, just, you know, it's in context. That's the war called Gagumagog. So Please, like, look it up for yourself. Tanakh is full of highly falsifiable claims and strange claims. Like, who would have thunk it back then? And behold, I don't know, maybe it's a coincidence, but here we are, the Jews have returned back, and nations just can't get over Jerusalem, and Israel has fought wars, and in some way, um, maybe got lucky or maybe not, some way we have defeated those enemies. Um, and, and, I mean, look at the, the claims that the Hebrew Bible is making and look at what we see today. But look at, And look at Christianity. It's like you, you're watching a guy who's you're just watching theological sleight of hand. It's like a magic show. This is exactly what I wanted to bring up because you were talking about the Christian Bible making claims about the Messiah. And the Old Testament has – you got the Old Testament, you got Talmud, you got other oral traditions talking about what the Messiah is actually supposed to do. So – this is what I wanted to talk about was like, is the Messiah supposed to come at the end of the world? Okay. According to Christianity, Messiah came 2000 years ago. That's not the end of the world. Strike number one, strike number two. And if I'm not mistaken, the old Testament says that no man can pay for the sins of another person. Which verse is that? Let's see. Ezekiel 18, verse 21, 22, 23. It's really the whole chapter. That whole chapter, there's a similar chapter, passage in Jeremiah 31, which somehow Christians, like these verses are never quoted in the Christian Bible. How weird. Like human sacrifice is the mother load of bad ideas in the Jewish Bible. I mean, why in the ancient world, um, if you go to Mexico, because you like scuba diving, so you go to Cancun, or you go to Cozumel, or you go to Central America. I mean, well, you go to the, why do they, like, take virgins and sacrifice them? Why do they take babies and and slaughter them on altars? Like, why babies and virgins? Like, why not rapists and bank robbers? I mean, if we had to vote for who, if we were going to have a human sacrifice system, we'd go, well, you know, take the Jeffrey Dahmers of the world, get the rapists, like the guys who rape and kill babies, like, go kill them. No, 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 no. We have to take, we don't take bad people, they only take virgins and babies. What does that mean? This is all over the world, the ancient world. Why? 
because a baby and a virgin represent what? Innocence. And what happens if you sacrifice a a 14-year-old virgin when the Aztecs did that? They believed that it would appease the gods and then they would have a, a harvest. That's what Christianity is. Christianity is human sacrifice and it's a, a grotesque, a spiritual ritual cannibalism that's part of the ancient world. All they did was they simply used a vague sketch of Judaism to pour it into, but of course it doesn't work. Because you got, so you got the, the scapegoat and you got the unblemished lamb, right? I, I, you can tell me, you can correct me wherever I'm wrong, but the, 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 I guess what happens on Passover is you let one of the, the, the goat free and then you slaughter the innocent one. Now, they're, they're basically allegorizing this with Jesus and Bar Barabbas. No, now, actually, it's two, two different things. It's two different things. And, and you, you, the, the reason why I do it is because, so that's a Yom Kippur event, Leviticus chapter 16. That's not the Passover lamb. This is what comes. This is the pollution. This is the after effect of spending way too much time in a church, is that this whole thing just gets conflated. That is all incorrect. So the Passover lamb, which Jesus is referred to, in Paul, very interestingly, 1 Corinthians 5-7, and in John, and, and Joannian literature, let the Epistle of John, which I don't believe was written by whoever wrote John, and the book of Revelation, but all the Joannian stuff has Jesus as the Lamb, John one twenty nine, John one thirty six. All that is completely mistaken. The Messiah is nowhere to be called is the lamb. The lamb on Passover did not die for anybody's sins. That's Exodus chapter 12. Please, please read it for yourself. The Passover lamb was an act of defiance that the children of Israel were called to do prior to the Exodus. That means immediately before the Exodus, the Jews were to take a lamb. And a lamb very important piece here, was considered a god in the, in the Egyptian world. Touching it, molesting it, death penalty. In India today, you can't touch a cow. They consider, the Hindus consider it holy. The lamb was a god to, to the ancient Egyptians. You're not allowed to kill it. In fact, in a conversation, Exodus chapter 8, Pharaoh makes an offer to Moses and goes, hey, why do you need to go into the wilderness with your people? Why don't you just slaughter your animal here? And Moses replies, retorts, because if we do, you'll kill us all. <laughs> so just so you know, this is not like I'm reaching. This is not rabbinic. This is just right there in the text. Like, wow. just go to Exodus chapter right. Wow is right. So they're so, using a Yom Kippur. It's conflated, but it's not Yom Kippur. It's really a Passover event. That's two whoa different things. They just conflated, and everyone goes, sure, because what Christian reads Leviticus anyway? I mean, really, what Christian reads Leviticus? They, Christians do read parts of Genesis. They do. They read about creation, Noah, Abraham. They do. They really, really do. And this but, is why Jews don't convert to Christianity. Because no. They're wicked, backslidden. Uh, what are they? They're not rejecting they, anything. They all, they all say that, oh, they're stiff necked, backslidden, wicked. This is what people in churches say right now. They're, it's not, the, the truth is, they know the Bible better than you do, and they don't like it. They don't, your arguments are not good. They're not, they're not, they're not only not compelling, you know, like, you know, I don't know, like flat earth stuff. It's not, it's not, or that the whole Apollo landing wasn't real. It's the whole thing is just, this is a scam. This is not UFOs. This is this is criminal. This is the kind of thing if you did in a courtroom, 
um, and you were an attorney and you played with contracts, you'd be disbarred and thrown in prison. This, this is, It'd be like yeah. this. Uh, we call up Eusebius as the uh, as the uh, first um, witness, and then he starts lying because all of Eusebius's writings are all basically made up stuff. He says Philo met Peter. That never happened. So it's yeah. like right off the bat, you lose that witness. Now what do you have? That's the whole church history right, right there. That's all of your all of your martyrdoms come from Eusebius. You got him once in the court of law in the, in the United States. Once you get caught lying under oath, you're done. Nothing you say is credible anymore. Eusebius. Right. Everything from Eusebius would be no longer credible. That's right. That means the whole thing, the whole kind con- in in American, it's not in any civilized country. Once any part of a contract is corrupted, then the whole contract is done. It's called the law of best evidence, which is a law in every civilized country. Law of best evidence is that the original contract in the original language, uncorrupted is the only one that's valid, nothing else. You can't have a Spanish translation of a contract take precedence over the original one in English. In this case, it's Hebrew, okay? I, 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 I want to just do one thing. I want to just share one thing with the viewers because I know that I, I, I lo- you Christians, I, I care about you and I know what you're going to be told. So I just want to just cover this point so you get it. So when you're told that by your pastor, you'll know what to say. So the Christians are going to say, well, the Masoretic text, yeah, we, can't, we do rely on it. But the oldest Masoretic text we have is the Aleppo Codex from the year 930. Okay? Okay. So I need to just take 100 seconds to clear up what is a Masoretic text and what does that mean? Because this is a part of the shell game that you're going to get. Hebrew is a consonantal language, okay? It means all consonants and no vowels. There's no vowels in the Dead Sea Scrolls, none, okay? The whole vowel system was done in the early Middle Ages, okay? Eighth century, that's when the... Now, prior to that, the vowels... So imagine the English language, but you just subtract all the vowels, right? So it's fine. You can recognize words. You can know, like, like Gnostic, you know that it's... It's spelt with a funny G in the beginning, even though it's not there, so you can recognize oddities and so on. But eventually what happens is rabbis realize that what was orally known, what the vowels were, we would be traditionally had to be written down. And many systems were tried, and this system that we have today, where the vowels and the trup, meaning the musical notes are added in to what's called a Masoretic text. So, But don't fool yourself. The Masoretic text and the Hebrew text Prior to the Masoretic text, it's the same thing. It's the same thing you have in the Isaiah Scroll, which is like 2,100 years old, as you'll find in the Aleppo Codex. It's the same thing, except in the Masoretic text, in the Aleppo Codex, or in the, in the Leningrad Codex, which is just a little bit later, 100 years later, you have just the dots on it. Don't be fooled by the scam that Aleppo is 930, because that's standard fair scam. And then you go, oh, I guess there he goes. The rabbis were lying in. You need knowledge that has been, you have been robbed of information. So be careful. The Hebrew consonants are always the same. If it's not a Masoretic text, which means it's before the vowel system was invented, then all you had were the consonants. So all the Masoretic text did is it didn't change the letters, didn't change the spelling, nothing. All it did was it added two things. Number one, it added the vowels in a written form. And number two, add the, the cantillations, which are called the trup. 
and also I should add, and the which is the, partially the grammar, like the equivalent of a comma or a semicolon in in the English language. But the Hebrew letters are the same, so don't fall for the scam that the yeah. Same thing. So in one hand, the church will go, oh, Masoretic text. I mean, the King James relied on the Masoretic text. I mean, we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls that the Masoretic text is really incredibly accurate, right? So, but then when it's a problem, that they dump on the Masoretic text. Like, what is it? If I'm not mistaken, the Christian Bible is, they reverse the order of the prophets in yep. the Old Testament. And yep. the reason why, you could, you could correct me if I'm wrong or, or add to what I'm saying. I think the reason why is because they wanted to end on Malachi because Malachi talks about the Messiah and talking about um, uh, John, not John the Baptist, but talks about Elijah coming back right at the end. So it, it leads up to Matthew saying John the Baptist is the new Elijah. Now, the, right. the real order of the prophets should end on the Chiamiah because that's the last one, right? Should end in the Ketuvim and therefore end in Chronicles. And what's really crazy, you want to hear crazy? Like you have to like, we have to do Lamaz now for craziness. So this also is a later invention. That means the writers of the New Testament knew the correct order, which is the Jewish order, to have the Torah, the five books of Moses, then the Nevi'im, what's called the prophets, and the Ketuvim, which is called the writings. Now the writings are all written by prophets. I'll get to in a moment why there's that division. But it's the Torah, the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the writings, like Psalms, like Proverbs, the wisdom literature, and in Chronicles. Now the New Testament writers knew that order. How do you know they knew it? Because it says it. Where? Luke 24, 44. Please take a moment, look it up for yourself. And you're going to see there, it mentioning that Jesus, the fulfillment of the Jewish Bible, says the Torah, the prophets, and Psalms, which is interchanged with writings. And they actually reverse the prophets and writings. Now we have to get to the reason why. The reason why is very, very nefarious. This is really dark. All right, we'll do it. I'll do it just, I'll do it real cover real fast. So wh what is the difference between the, the prophets and the writings? So the prophets, like Joshua, really important judges, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, um, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, etc. all of the rest of me, those books are written with very harsh criticism. The prophet, the parts that are called the Nevi'im, the prophets, basically engage in one overarching theme, and that is to criticize the Jews for every mistake they've made and what they have to correct. So the entire, that part of the prophets contained is dominated by enormous criticism of every mistake ever made. If you wanted to, if you lived during biblical times and you wanted to make it into the Bible, you wanted to have that sin, and that's what will get you in. And then the Bible will highlight that, and it ignores almost anything else. Really great kings are hardly mentioned. Yotam, you haven't heard of him. Guy never sinned. Okay, now, if the Torah is the instruction, that's the five books of Moses, listen very carefully, the Nevi'im, that prophetic part, capital P, is telling you what you can do wrong. Now, that also contains messianic prophecy for a reason I'm not going to go into right now. Then what is the role of the writings? The role of the writings is this is how you get back. That means if the problem is contained the prophets, and you well, okay, I messed up, like Isaiah said, like Jeremiah said, like Ezekiel said, then the writings, this is, how, this is the medicine 
to the disease of sin and go to the book of Psalms and talk to God, and this is what you do. So Psalms is the antidote, is the healing, is the medication for Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, right? Chronicles is the healing. Proverbs, this is how you fix the problem of sin. The church, ah, they want to add on the business. Why? Because what does the, the Christian Bible want to be the healing, the antidote to sin? They don't want the book of Psalms to be the healing. So what they do is they switch it around so that when you're looking for a healing, when you're done with Malachi, you then go to Matthew. And there's your healing. It's the cross. And John the Baptist becomes a reincarnation somehow of Elijah, which where in the only, hell? Only in only Matthew, not in John. And John, he denies it. Right. So it's like, that's one of the they things that's going to come back. Elijah never comes back. So how do they fix that? Oh, well, just say John the Baptist is Elijah. Fix that problem. It's like, you just see all these. But John the Baptist is asked, are you Elijah? And he says, he says no. no. <laughs> I, you it's know, so crazy. If you're not familiar it, with the text, you, probably, so you may think that you're listening to someone who just doesn't like Christianity for whatever reason. And I'm like making this stuff up. I'm but it's, it's right there. Yeah, it's it's right so there. easy to find yeah. it. And look, listen, I'm, I've been keeping you here forever. I just want to, real quick, I want to ask you last thing about, because we we're talking about the Passover, and we're talking about historical Jesus. Yeah. A lot of Christians think that this Talmud is talking about Jesus of Nazareth being hung on Passover for leading Israel astray. His mother's name is Mary. What is the deal with this? Is this the real Jesus? Is this some other Jesus? What is this? So we, we have a character in the Talmud that comes up quite a bit. Talmud is the largest document of the ancient world and records the sayings and teachings of people like Rabbi Gamaliel, who's in the Christian Bible. Fakely, we're told in Acts that he was a teacher of Paul, which is not that. Forget all that, okay? But this is like the mission of Talmud is really, really important, very important Jewish literature. Now, we have a figure named Jesus. They go, well, Jesus, that's got to be Yeshu. Well, that's got to be Jesus. Like, how many Jesus do you know? All right, so he's the first baseman for the for the, for the the Red Sox. Forget that, Jesus. I'm just saying that as it turns out, the name Yeshu or Yeshua was just the equivalent of Josh. It was a truncated Joshua. Okay, that's all it was, Josh. Okay, and we have not one, but many events in the Talmud which talks about him, and he is not uh, described in a charitable way. He's not described, he doesn't come off well at all. His mother is described as an adulteress who had a baby, this is big, okay, with a Roman soldier named Pandera Pantera, and out comes this guy, Yeshu, who leads the Jewish people astray. He brings idolatry from Egypt. Egypt was like, I mean, it's not like an accident that the that the, the word Trinity was invented in Africa, was invented in Carthage. I mean, it, can anything good come out of Alexandria? I mean, the doctrine of the Trinity. All right, so, so, so what happened is you have this figure in the Talmud who's coming up, who's not coming up favorably. Now, here's the caveat. you got to listen very... So there's got to be a full disclosure. For some reason, this Jesus figure, this Yeshu figure in the Talmud is dated to either a person who lived in the 1st century BCE or in the 2nd century. Okay? So this is very important. You have to listen very carefully. 
And in fact, when Jews were put on trial for having a Talmud that said blasphemy against Jesus and Mary, like, this would make the church a little uncomfortable. And of course, they, and they, they, the church had a thing for not writing anything that's, that's unflattering of Christianity. The defense that the Jews used was that these references to Jesus is not your Jesus. It's not the Yeshu of Christianity, but there's one for in the Talmud in Sanhedrin that he lived during time of Rabbi Shubin Parachi. I don't expect anyone to memorize that, but just believe me, he lived about 100 in the first century BCE. Okay. By the way, mythicists appeal to this. Mythicists, some, not all, but some, many mythicists appeal to this and say, ah, the Jesus really never existed, and they were just taking someone from the Talmud from who was a century earlier. That's just. Don't let that confuse you. Stay with me. You've got, you got, you got these un, really uncomplimentary things about this Yeshu person, but he's first century BCE, or he's in the second century, which means he would be a contemporary of Rabbi Akiva. So he's not the Jesus of Christianity. That is one view, and it's a big view. Chiefly, it was the view that was used in the defense of the Talmud in France in 1242, when the Talmud was put on trial, by the way, it didn't win. Um, <laughs> every, every Talmud was burnt in front, with the Louvres today, every Talmud, 500,000 manuscripts were burnt by the church, uh, St. Louis the Ninth, a filthy dog, the horrible anti-Semite. Anyways, well, I don't want to get into all this stuff. So the Talmud was put on trial, but this was the defense, the chief defense that the Jews, like to for a Jew to live in Spain in the 13th century, that's like living in North Korea, okay? So <laughs> it's Kim Jong-un. So, you know, like I don't know what someone would say if they were thrown in jail in North Korea, but, you know, whatever. So... The, the consent, I don't want to use the word consensus, it's a very strong word. So there are two views on this. One view is that the Jesus mentioned in the Talmud is a different Jesus. And that was, in fact, the defense that the Jews used, so Jews don't get killed. The other view, which is probably the consensus, definitely in the non-Jewish world, is that this is all about the Jesus of Christianity. And the Jews were facing death by church. And therefore, the Jews had to alter their own Talmud, and we actually collected every text and said, hey, everybody, we, we have to change these texts. We're going to put those texts somewhere else so you can find them. It's like the book of the missing texts, which we still have to this day. And, and because we just don't want people to die. So just like people who save Jews from the Nazis had to lie to the Nazis, like Corrie Ten Boom. So they did that in order to protect us. So the Jews took the character Jesus, who really is the Jesus of the first century, and then shoved him to the first century BCE and the second century. Not for any theological reason, just to make sure that Jewish communities would not be killed by the church. It did not work very well, I should say. It was, I mean, the church didn't buy it. And a, many say, Jews how can two Jesus of Nazareth both being killed for leading Israel astray and both have a mother named Mary? It gets more. Do you want more or do you want me to go? You want, do you want, you want me to give you something? But every other show is going to be jealous that I'm giving you this hot, hot stuff. Okay. 50 bucks for this one. <laughs> I want you to listen very carefully. This is hot. This is pure heat. 
as it turns out, is it a coincidence that if the Jesus of the Talmud is the Jesus of Christianity, then Jesus, according to this version, was conceived through adultery and did not have a human Jewish father because his actual biological father was a Roman soldier. Okay. By the way, Roman soldiers were everyone where in the first century because the state of Israel was a vassal state of Rome from Pompeii. Okay, so get it. So this is not like well, where'd you find an Italian? They're everywhere. Okay, got it. And then the church claims that Jesus was born to a virgin. Is that a coincidence that both the church and the Jewish tradition. This is really strong, big sources on this. This is not just legend, this is big. This is like huge. So you have these just two versions, but both of them agree that Jesus wasn't born to a Jewish woman and a Jewish father. I mean, is it an accident that when Paul refers to Jesus, he calls him the born to a woman according to the law? Like, what about a mommy and a daddy? Maybe but it gets even more heated than this. You could say this is chalk this up to a complete coincidence, or we can get hotter. Could it be that the Joseph character, being Joseph, the husband of Mary, who had nothing to do with the uh, conception of Jesus, according to Matthew and Luke, was a later invention to cover this? Go, oh, Rabbi Singer, don't engage in conspiracy stuff. You better have to back it up. Are you ready? Take a deep breath. Okay. If it, this were true, that Joseph, the husband of Mary, was a later invention, what, and I'm going to ask you this question because we didn't do this before, what would you expect to find in the text of the Christian Bible? Early text versus later text in the canon. Would you expect to find Joseph in the early text or only in the later text? So I want your viewers to get this. If Joseph is an invention in order to cover for an, an unflattering conception. And then you have your plot device for both Matthew and Luke. They're very different, but in this way, the same. What you would, this is what you'd expect. See, this is the way you do real theological math. You don't play games. You don't go believe me. And you notice something I do. I never quote scholars. I say, let's go to the original text. I mean, I quoted Franz Delich because it was like so amazing, but I don't quote scholars. Read, do it for yourself. Where do we find Joseph, the husband of Mary? Is he mentioned in the letters of Paul? None of them. And he hung out for two weeks in Jerusalem and no one told him, so nowhere he's mentioned. What's the earliest gospel? The earliest gospel is the book of what? Mark. Is, is Joseph mentioned in the book of Mark? No. Never, never. Who is the carpenter in Mark? It's not Joseph, it's Jesus, Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Our only source in the entire Christian Bible that Jesus was a carpenter is Mark. And Joseph is never mentioned because they never thought of Joseph yet. I know it's crazy. Wait a second. Hold on a second. Let's I know. This out. I told you. All was written big. in the 50s and 60s. Maybe maybe not, maybe 60. Right. He's not in Hebrews. Like Hebrews so, so is written Paul in like 64, 65. So, yeah, so if Paul's first, He's not mentioning any Joseph character. Nothing. He's, he I might mean, have because it would Mark, come up in context. Then you get Mark, relations no fulfilled. Joseph. He mentions born to a woman. Right. right. Then you get Joseph, no, or Mark, no Joseph. And Nothing. then all of a sudden, when is Matthew written? 80, 85. Like, then all of a sudden, Joseph appears. Bingo. Exactly. What? This I told you. Crazy. I told you.
This I told is you. I, I told you that you're not, not gonna. You're not gonna ask for a refund on the show. But what I'm what I want to do is, you know, I know we're all used to conspiracy theories. I'm not. I'm a rabbi. Let me be clear. People come to me and they want to make really important decisions. Okay, I'm not just there, like selling books, whatever. People are coming to me for like, and they need to see things black and white. Like, it's not like I think it's similar to that. And there's this ancient. No, 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 no. Let's get tight. Let's go in the text itself. And in fact, as it turns out, it's oh, in Matthew. Then we're told about Joseph, who was Joseph is the carpenter in Matthew, not not in Mark. You see, in Mark, it's Jesus who's the carpenter. In Matthew, it's Joseph is the carpenter. And as it turns out, Joseph is mentioned in John in the book, the last book. That means the most highly um, modified, embellished of all the four gospels. Obviously, the book of John. And there you have. You want to get ready for this? This is like a deep breath. In the book of John, only Joseph, the father of Jesus, is mentioned. The, 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 the alleged father of Jesus is mentioned. And Mary is never mentioned. Mary, the mother of Jesus, never mentioned by name in the book of John. Never. Not once. She is referred to as the mother of Jesus in an unflattering way at the wedding in Cana, but he just says, Mother, what do I have to do with you? Never, she's never called Mary. John, she's put down. Why? Because John has the logos. John wants Jesus to be semi-divine. If Jesus is semi-divine, she's awkward. Like, I don't need a mother's womb for this. He comes from the eternal past. Yes, sir. I just thought of something. So you get, jo- you get Joseph. First of all, I didn't even know that Joseph's not mentioned in Mark. That just blew my mind. But right. second of all, now that now that you just mentioned that to me, the other two Gospels before John, Matthew and Luke, have a genealogy in them trying to connect Jesus to David and all the other prophets, like Abraham and right, whatever. Right, right. Those, those genealogies are not Mary. They're, they have Joseph in the right. genealogy, which means they're, they're trying not relevant. To, they, they need Joseph to make him a Davidic bloodline. Right. What? This lines up with what you're saying. That's right. And that, so what you do, this is the way you do real research, is you don't, you don't start with an idea and then try to manufacture the evidence. What you do is go, okay, if the Joseph person is mythical and he's covering for something, and we have this huge, again, this is the Talmud, this is very serious literature. So we, you have to think to yourself, what do we then expect to find in the text? And then you can then trace. We know Paul is the earliest surviving Christian literature. We know John is the last gospel chronologically of the of the New Testament. We know that. I mean, this is not disputed. So what you would expect to find is what we find from the from First Thessalonians to Mark. No mention of Joseph. Nothing. And then, as we would expect, we'd expect to find Joseph all over the place afterwards. Is it a coincidence? Maybe. It's unlikely. There you go, my friends. Here's another thing I want to point out real quick, and then we can finish off. Because people are going to say, well, the Talmud is written in 300 AD. But if if you read the Talmud, which I have read a lot of it, the sources in the Talmud are, they're talking about events that happened in the first century, like a meeting between Vespasian and the high priest Yohanan, in depth, with detail, as if they're... So this is, this is non-controversial. You, look, 
everything we've talked about, I, I didn't look it up. I have chapters in my books. I'm really not trying to sell books, but I have old chapters dedicated to Septuagint. If you go pick the encyclopedia of your, not these are not religious people who do these encyclopedias. You look up Septuagint. There's nothing I'm saying that's weird. You're not listening to the rantings of a, a non-Christian rabbi. This is, everything I'm telling you is just mainstream right there, okay? It's just very, very simple stuff. There's, there's no conspiracy here. I'm not saying it sounds a lot like that. It's not that. It's what we, it's just the same thing with the doctrine of the Trinity. We would expect in the earliest gospel, Mark, to find an adoptionist theology, and we would expect to find in, in, in a theology like we find in John with a Logos where we find our highest Christology. And then later on we have Ignatius saying that Jesus claiming Jesus is God, and then we have the Doctrine of Trinity hammered out in Nicaea. I mean, you could just trace this. This is not like, this is not a conspiracy thing. This is not like this sounds like that. You, you just can apply the math, and it's just a simple equation. This is math. This is what equals Y. This is what equals X. And bingo, you put in the numbers, and it comes out perfectly. And there you go. And this is why I wanted to have you on, because I've been watching your videos, you and Derek talking, and hearing your claims when I was a Christian. This is when I, I first discovered you when I was a Christian. Hearing the claims that you would make would be like, if, this, if, if he's right, everything I'm believing in is false. And so what I would do is instead of running to the pastor and trying to get some biased response, I actually would go to the text, even learn a little bit of Hebrew if I had to, and look at what you're saying, and it all checked out. I have yet to find anything you said. Right, and that's what we did tonight. If you notice, I, I don't, well, we, we've never done a show together, and, you know, and I, nothing disparaging, but, but scholars like to quote other scholars, you know, whatever, great scholars, Albert Schweitzer, genius, right? One thing you'll notice is I never quote scholars because I always, I want the viewers to go to the original text. Stop relying on people. The primary text, the actual texts are there, accessible. We have it, we have all the texts. You can go right back to it like we did this tonight. Go back to the original text. I didn't say in his, Boltman, I don't forget that. I'm not saying it's not valuable, but you, we have access to more information today than we ever did in human history. Why not just, there's a lot at stake here. As you said, if Christianity is false, it's not like Buddhism, like they, if you're Buddhist, don't be offended, like, oh, I guess some guy sat and thought well, it was a bad idea to go to war. You know, it's not, this is not Buddhism where a guy just sat and thought for a while and came up with this stuff, and maybe they're wrong, and maybe Krishna is not a deity. And they thought he was, but it was an honest mistake of some people who were just, you know, spending too much time eating, you know, eating vegetation, you know, whatever, you know, not in a protein, whatever, whatever. I imagine it was well-meaning people that just whatever. But this stuff is a scam. This is the kind of this is the kind of stuff that gets you thrown in prison. And this is why the church hates the Jews in its literature because they have to portray the Jews as devils. John eight forty four, because if we're not devils, that means we must be telling the truth. The Jews, everyone knows, clever people. We have that reputation, always did. It's our Bible. Only we can read it. Only we're waiting for the Messiah. Either the Jews are the worst people in the world or the best people. And I will submit this. In truth, and I'll end with this, I would challenge people, go to any, pick any city you want in North America, Europe, and ask somebody, what do you think of the Jews? London, Brussels, it doesn't make a difference. Cologne, 
go. The only rule is that the person has to say the truth. Okay? What do you think you're going to hear from people in Rome, in Athens, if they have to tell the truth? I assure you, now, if you ask them without that caveat, they go, oh, I think the Jews are fine, and they're just like everybody else, right? You know, but that's not what they really think. People have very, very strong views of Jewish people. And we're a really tiny people. They either love us or hate us. We're highly polarizing people. For example, if I asked people on the streets of New York, San Francisco, Miami, Chicago, London, Manchester, what do you think of the Koreans, the South Koreans? What do you think of the Chinese? Chinese, that's the most successful race in the world. People really don't have strong views about the Chinese people. Great food. They work hard. I don't know. They, I don't know. Whatever. People have like, what do you think of the Japanese? I don't know. Toyota is a great company. People just don't have strong views about the Japanese. But the Jews, it's either hate them or love them. Now, everyone's going to tell you they don't have an opinion, like they never formed an opinion about Jews. But it's, it's obviously not true. People have very strong views about the Jews. And this really is Christian. Because either the Jews are bringing the world truth and telling them, do not follow the church, or we are the devils themselves who are smart like Satan, and we're therefore we are trying to cover your eyes because our eyes have been covered with a veil in Second Corinthians chapter 3. That's what it all comes down to. Now, what I encourage you to do is go back to the original text. If you look at the situation of the time period, it was wars against the Jews. It was 66 to 74 AD. It was the uh, it was 132 AD with mm -hmm. the revolt. And it make it almost like it, it lines up why you would have a religion popping up to be an anti-Judaism religion. Of course, of course. In fact, anti-Semitism, I'm going to get kickback on this. I probably shouldn't do it. But anti-Semitism in its modern sense that the Jews control the world and control the banks, control Hollywood and poison the wells. And basically, that's really all Christian. We don't really have anything like it. It's not that there was no one before Christianity that ever said anything unpleasant about Jewish people. But the iteration of anti-Semitism that we're all very aware of. And no one ever says we hate the Jews because they're stupid. Never. Because the Ku Klux Klan will expel you for saying something so stupid. That's going too far. So I, I just want to illustrate you. Think of all the canards you've heard about Jewish people in your life, right? Well, the Jews control the banks, control Hollywood. They control the president. We control politics. We control the Senate. We control the thing. We control, we control, we control everybody. And the world is our puppets. That's all Christian. There's nothing like that prior to Christianity. They invented this darkness. And it's like, it's like Rome destroys Jerusalem that causes a huge di diaspora. And now you have a religion that conveniently tells them, oh, the Messiah already came. He wants you to pay your tribute to Rome. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. All this stuff is in there in the text. And it's like, eh, it seems a little convenient. But listen, this has been a great, this has been awesome. I really want to have you back on in maybe a couple months or maybe sooner than that. But this has been great. And, Thank uh, you. And anybody who hasn't heard of him yet by now, his link is in the description, um, your YouTube channel. Any other links that you want to shout out to? That no, my YouTube is Toby Singer. My, my books are Let's Get Biblical and Volume 1 and 2. And you can, my site is outreachjudaism.org or you can get them on Amazon. And, and anyways, I, I really enjoyed our conversation. <laughs> it was very exciting. And thank you very much for having me on. All right, and you have just attained true gnosis. 
You have just attained true gnosis. The Demiurge has no power over you. Jesus.